Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Nitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have with us again Saifedean Amus. We're working on this week with him. He's an Austrian economist, author of the Bitcoin Standard. And the topic of this episode is going to be economic calculation. So welcome back, Saifedean. Thank you for having me, Trace. So humanity produces steel to build things. They produce wheat to eat things. They produce oil to burn it for fuel. Then they produce gold. Like, why do we dig two miles into the earth, crush all this rock, melt down this gold, and then move it to another hole that we then station people around to guard it? You know, if you're looking down on, on humanity, and this is what Warren Buffett talks about, like, why do we do this? And I, I would assert that we do it because the value that gold provides is in performing economic calculation. Well, what is economic calculation? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the reason we do it is that until the invention of Bitcoin, this was the simplest, uh, easiest, most reliable way of doing it. And so, you know, anybody who has a way of running a global monetary system that doesn't involve uh, the work that goes into gold, arguably has involved far higher costs, as we we saw with things like government money, because uh, the real cost there is in their infl- is in the damage that is done through inflation. And that's essentially the problem with easy money. Well, one of the main problems with easy money. So essentially, the problem with time preference is effectively, you know, time preference, as, as we mentioned in the previous discussion, time preference is the originator of the idea of store of value. The reason that we have a store of value is because people drop their time preference. And the other uh, function of money as a unit of account, as the unit for performing economic calculation, is the driver of this other major problem with money, with easy money. So easy money ruins time, time preference and ruins economic calculation because hard money is able to, because it, it, its supply resists manipulation. It resists manipulation by people who don't pay market costs to affect the supply and demand because the supply is essentially make-believe. And because it is not really a free market good and because its acceptance on the free market is imposed by government, the supply and the demand are not truly established according to the market. And so therefore, in the case of easy money, the uh, currency itself becomes an unsuitable metric or measure with which to measure economic value and with which to perform economic calculation. In other words, in the case of gold as the hardest material, because its supply is very hard to influence and because the vast majority of the trades that take place in gold are with the existing gold so that the new gold is largely insignificant to the old gold or insignificant to the daily volume of trade it is primarily a monetary asset because of that the value and the fluctuation in the price of things as expressed in gold is largely 
a result of you know people's demand for money and people's you know changing uh, pref- time preference towards holding money versus spending today and that's essentially what you want your money to be doing that's what it's there to do um, so people are able to perform calculation with gold and that's why we see a remarkable not stability but a remarkable constancy in a remarkable preservation in the purchasing power of gold that you know obviously not everything is the prices isn't stable but you know the price of a cow historically has roughly been around an ounce of gold at many different times and places and continues to be at around that price and that's you know one of the most essential goods everywhere in the world human civilization only exists around places where people eat uh, cattle essentially or at least fish But the use of easy money, because it can be manipulated essentially, creates massive problems in terms of uh, in terms of the ability of to perform economic calculation. And this really is an insight that Mises came up with while um, critiquing socialism in the 1920s. And so, uh, the story of Mises and uh, his critique of socialism is obviously. Uh, a fun one. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, so we're we're zooming in. We would we would zoom into the individual, you know, in his book Human Action, that humans act deliberately to bring about some ends. And then we could zoom out and look at prices and how prices under a capitalist system are ways that we're able to ascertain knowledge about consumer preference of comparative goods, and and then. If we're not going to be using a profit and loss model to perform economic calculation to allocate resources, then how else are we going to do it? I mean, we've got we've got additional books like Socialism or Bureaucracy. Yeah. So maybe you could uh, elucidate or elaborate a little bit more on kind of that point. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, the market is something that emerges on its own, and that's the, the very important Hayekian insight of spontaneous order. And you know, the market doesn't need somebody to uh, doesn't need economists to understand it and institute it. You know, we didn't have economists tell us that gold was going to be money in order for it to become money. It became money, and then economists studied it and tried to understand why. Yeah, so that would be chartalism versus uh, subjective value theory and regression theory of money. Yes. Exactly, and so the ability to perform for anyone to be able to make any kind of economic decision, they need to make calculation. They need to compare, you know, the apples versus the oranges, the number of apples you can buy versus how many oranges you can sell. Obviously, beyond the scale of a primitive little tribe of no more than a few dozen people, it becomes completely impractical to have a system uh, of direct exchange or a system of favors or credit or kinship. It's. Uh, it becomes essential that you have an impersonal uh, ledger technology that allows you to just keep store of the value that you receive from others without having to continue to keep track of it in many different forms and shapes. So, you know, the medium of exchange emerges as this one common thing in which all transactions are denominated. And the advantage of that is that, you know, it is one price for every good rather than having an infinite array of Permutations, exactly. Like, like, oh, what's the gold to uh, butter ratio? What's the butter to egg ratio? What's the egg to cattle ratio? What's the cattle to butter ratio? You know that that would just be unwieldy, and and it would just it would raise the cost of performing economic calculation because you'd have to think about stuff more, and then you know that that would cause kind of like sand in the in the ball bearings of the of the of the economy. So. You know, the story of humanity's progress is largely a story of their ability to do accounting, right? 
I mean, that's what you're asserting, whether it's yap stones or gold or double entry bookkeeping or math. math. Well, I mean, well, we have to we have to take math and apply it into an accounting system. I mean, we can't do an accounting system without math. Uh, So, you know, now that we we had the Medici and with double entry bookkeeping and then that led to, you know, T accounts and capital formation and corporate governance. Well, now with Bitcoin, we've got the first practical implementation of triple entry bookkeeping because we've got a debit, a credit, and then we have a confirmation in the blockchain. And this is going to cause more accurate settlement of prices across multiple firms, right? And so how how do you kind of, which the gold standard would kind of naturally do, but because they screwed that up so bad, we have this bifurcation between price and value. So when we're looking at trying to figure out this knowledge problem in order to perform economic calculation, why is it so important for us to have this sound hard money in order to do that? Essentially, the key idea, the, the importance is that market forces it's themselves determine the value and the interest rate rather than these things being determined through central uh, command. At, at a very simple level, the issue is, you know, the same reason that the Russians today have potato, but they didn't have potato 40 years ago. Yeah, but they, yeah, the price of a of a sausage is one ruble, but there's no sausage. Exactly. <laughs> right? So when we have the Federal Reserve uh, setting the price of eggs economy-wide, like an egg board would do, right? So they're setting the price of money or interest rates. What exactly is happening? Like, what knowledge does the interest rate try to impart yeah, it's only arguably the most important price in the economy. Um, it is the price of capital, and capital is a big deal, as we may have discussed once or twice before. <laughs> uh, you know, capital is essentially what separates us from barbarism as animals um, in a jungle. Uh, it, it's what allows us to improve our lives, to build on uh, previous generations. Capital is physical and also uh, non-physical. Like education, ideas, education, understandings, ideas. processes, all of this type of stuff, law. Yeah, exactly. All of these things, you know, really, I think a good way to stop feeling entitled is just remind yourself that, you know, when you were born, this was an entire planet that had been going on for many thousands of years, of human, of, years. Civiliz- <laughs> of, civil- of human civilization, you know, at least a few last several dozen thousands of years. Leading up to developing all these languages and technologies and machines and roads and infrastructure and airplanes and cars. And calculus and astronomy yeah. and, and you chemistry. haven't had to do anything to come into this world that has all of this stuff already pre-built, uh, ready for you to use, you know? So the world's already done enough for you, just if you <laughs> exist. Um, so, you know, this capital process, the accumulation of capital is uh, the, the capital market in terms of the goods themselves that make up the capital market, like the machines, is to an extent a free market in that, you know, there's less intervention in the market for the machines. But capital in the, in the financial sense as the, um, you know, the financial resources that people invest in different places, that is a market that is essentially centrally planned. What happens with that? Because, you know, we, we have the business cycle, and so interest rates are regulating production over time. So when we have the centralized egg board setting the price of eggs across an entire country or the entire world, in the case of a world reserve settlement currency, what what's happening? And what types of desirable or, I would say, undesirable yep. effects are resulting from this? Yeah, I mean, the main one is that there's a distortion in the price for capital. So, therefore, 
people will save less because the interest rates usually they bring them down too much. I mean, uh, arguably, they have sometimes had them too high, but you know nobody really knows whether it's too high, it's too low. The problem is that there's no actually too high or too low. There's no right answer. Uh, the 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 correct answer is for there to be a market process. The correct answer is not for there to be uh, just continuous uh, a Politburo. Yeah, a Politburo that this is, that tries to get the right. Yeah, price. a PhD then, standard. Exactly. You know, ha- how about we have a seven billion people decide the interest rate standard instead of like yeah. a couple people on a board that are you know yeah. insulated from political ramifications. Yeah, and so essentially manipulating that price is distorting the capital market it distorts the capital market towards having less savings in, in a, therefore less capital available and also having making interest rates lower makes long-term projects look more profitable than they actually are and so you end up with people making erroneous calculations about long-term projects imagining that they would be able to be profitable in these in the long run thinking they have enough capital to make these plans, but they don't actually have enough capital because people aren't saving because the central bank said interest rates uh, should be low. So this discrepancy between saving and investment is essentially made up for through inflation. You know, so the central bank creates that money that is filling the gap between savings and investment. And as a result of that, we end up with the essentially the business cycle. That's what Austrian business cycle theory explains. And so essentially the business cycle and recessions and unemployment are just a consequence of easy money. Right. And then we actually get increases in the amplitudes of the business cycles as a result of the central bank intervention. And as Mises has told us, you know, there's no way to avoid the final crack up boom. Why is that? Why is there no way to avoid this? Can't we be saved by the egg bureau? No, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, we can be saved by the egg bureau if they stop being an egg bureau and they leave the market for eggs to the people who own the chickens and the people who want to eat the eggs and just let them figure it out on their own. Same thing with capital. But essentially, I think there is a very strange idea that I have been toying with recently, which is that Bitcoin uh, doesn't have to entail spectacularly bad ending for uh, the fiat currency and the the fiat monetary system because Bitcoin being a harder asset is appreciating as a monetary asset gradually and its value is rising over time. And that's that's just a genuine market process where market value is being created because people are believing in this thing and putting value into it. And essentially that is going to eat up the value of the other currencies that are being used as money. But by eating up that value, going to also eat up the debt because all of these currencies are debt. And so on the one hand, people are going to want to hold fewer dollars. If, if the world continues to move more and more towards Bitcoin, it's true that the world will want to hold fewer dollars and more Bitcoin. And so people extrapolate from that thinking of the demands, thinking only of the demand side, they extrapolate that this would mean that we end up with cheaper dollars and the price of dollars collapse. But you know, if you look at examples of hyperinflation, Hyperinflation is always a phenomenon of an increase in supply. It's not a collapse in demand. You know, there's there's no way that the demand in Venezuela collapsed to a millionth of where it was a few years ago. And that's what caused hyperinflation is the supply going up. But that does kind of kick kick start it off when you when you have this loss of confidence, like with, with the Reichmark, it was the loss of confidence coupled with the previous increase in supply it caused people to start wanting to get rid of their right marks faster because they began to lose confidence in them. 
So it's when that velocity speeds up and people don't want to hold it anymore. It's that lack of demand from a hardware of last resort, basically. Yeah, it's true. However, I mean, I think the uh, flip side to this is that in a, in, in a monetary system where money creation happens from credit creation, in that kind of monetary system, as the flip side of people wanting to hold more dollars and fewer Bitcoin is that people are going to start accumulating capital and savings in Bitcoin and they're going to start getting out of debt in dollars. And so as people start getting out of debt in dollars, the creation of dollars declines. And so effectively, Bitcoin is going to be eating the debt creation process. And it could essentially eat it in an orderly way Mm -hmm. that basically just, you know, unwinds, uh, gently unpacks the house of cards that is the global fiat system, taking the cards apart and putting them back in the deck safely without the thing falling apart and causing any victims. Yeah, I've kind of asserted it. It can act like a release valve. And so we don't have to have this big, giant, massive collapse. It just organically boils up one by one as people move to a harder, sounder money. And in the process, Bitcoin becomes a black hole on the world's balance sheet. And as people transition from this debt-based fiat currency, fractional reserve banking, monetary system to an equity-based reserve, sound, hard money economic system, uh, what happens is because of how it impacts the interest rates is that people just follow Shakespeare's advice to neither borrower nor lender be because you don't want to lend any of your capital yes. to somebody because they most likely won't have the productive capacity to be able to pay back the capital and the interest. And then lenders, uh, like, why take on more debt? You yeah. know, and, and we've seen that happen. Like, oh, you know, a bunch of people took out a bunch of debt using their Bitcoin as collateral, you know, with like Genesis trading or whatever, and they've gotten wrecked because the, the Bitcoin goes down. And so now they're losing more Bitcoins in it than if they just yeah. sold the Bitcoin and and, you know, funded lifestyle or whatever they were doing. And so I've also talked about how, like, in a market crash, Bitcoin will be kind of like the rubber ducky in the bathtub that's floating on top of the water. Now, we don't know how much water is coming into the bathtub, and we don't know how much water is going out the bathtub through the drain, but the rubber ducky will float on top of the water. And so, like, either way, you're going to be just fine because you're in a pure equity-based it's nobody's liability type of an asset. And because you're holding the private keys and you're able to run a full node at a much co- more cost-efficient yeah. way, it becomes the asset with the lowest risk profile. Yeah. It doesn't have risk of increase in supply. It doesn't have risk in confiscation through inflation. It doesn't have risk from being confiscated or seized. You know, This becomes a new risk-free asset. Yes, it's essentially making its way down to the bottom of Exeter's pyramid. Yeah, the liquidity pyramid. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it started off at the very highest tip of it, the most kind, the the, the highest kind of speculative kind of asset, and well, well, I mean, there were derivatives a little bit further up, probably like I mean, credit default swaps or interest Bitcoin rate swaps. In Two thousand and nine was probably. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what's this magic internet money thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it made CDS look orthodox at that point. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 just been an inexorable drop down the pyramid towards the base, you know, where gold is. And I think what's what's going to be really interesting, and I discussed this in my research uh, bulletins, in the financial crisis, we're going to see this, uh, how it moves along. And I think it's just going to be largely the financial crises that 
make the biggest moves downward in terms of uh, where it stands in the risk profile and uh, where it's viewed as it, as it begins to seep into people's mind as just gold at the bottom. Yeah, so like my book, The Great Credit Contraction, I had the liquidity pyramid in there. And, and the quote I have with it is, the system does not collapse, it evaporates. Mm-hmm. And so as the capital moves down that liquidity pyramid, what's left that was already misallocated capital to begin with, it's going to evaporate away in terms of value relative to your risk-free or asset with the lowest risk profile, which has been gold, arguably, but now there's a new contender on the scene with Bitcoin. And it's the U.S. dollars that are on top of gold because they're the they're the world reserve settling currency, but they could become worthless. They're somebody's liability, unlike gold. So gold can never become worthless. So like we know that gold's superior to dollars in that sense, even if gold's lacking the monetization or being used as a currency in day-to-day stuff. And so it'll likely be dollars that would evaporate last in this liquidity pyramid because they're the safest and most liquid. And that helps explain why interest rates have done what they've done with dollars over the last 10 years. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think I agree entirely. I think, you know, this is why dollars rise. And arguably, the thing about it is that if you think about Exeter's pyramid in today's world, you know, gold has the bottom position in the pyramid by excellence when thinking into of liquidity across time. However, in terms of liquidity across space and the ability to transfer money, you know, even US dollars in banks are more liquid. And so it's 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 distorted in, in that regard that there's no single one asset that is money. This generation has never lived in a world that has had that. And that's what the gold standard was. And this is why I think a lot of people are shocked uh, by my book because it just flies in the dogma of flies in the face of the dogma of progress that we hold so dear that today is the best day ever and tomorrow is going to be better. And it's it's just this idea that, you know, the 19th century was darkness and backwardness. But no, actually, economically speaking, the 19th century, they had established flight in economic terms, in terms of the economic system. And now we're back to sticks and stones. You know, now we're back to hurling uh, rocks at each other. We've re-established barter. What Hans Hermann Hoppe says, it's a global system, a system of global partial barter. We've gone back. And so people don't even know what a global money would do. But what a global money would do is allow you to perform economic calculation all over the planet. With more one, accurately, more with accurately. a lower cost. With, yeah, with one unit. You know, in 1900, if you're a businessman in Italy, importing and exporting to 25 countries, all the prices of all your goods were always, in all these countries, denominated in gold, and you paid in gold. And so whatever stupid activities are undertaken by the government of any of the countries, it does not affect the value of gold. So you didn't have to have a foreign exchange office in every business to figure out and try and you know read the tea leaves of every central bank out there to figure out how much we should hedge for our position in buying steel from this country because of the currency and all that. So the, the, this international aspect of dividing the world into individual currencies is just um, insane. It's, it's, it's economic backwardation. We, we went back massively. And effectively, as we were mentioning earlier, the political and economic and the decline that Barzun talks about and in terms of the economic institutions, in monetary institutions as well, I think that that also applies. The one place where it does not apply is obviously in technology, because technology by its very nature is just always adding on. Although, arguably, and we didn't get into this in, in, in 
great detail when we uh, were discussing uh, Barzun in the 19th century uh, and time preference. But, you know, when thinking of uh, entrepreneurship and the capital accumulation, the other aspect of hard money is that individuals, as we were, you were saying, they wouldn't be saving. They would be saving more. They would be spending less and they would be borrowing less and there would be far less credit going around. And so you'd end up with a whole bunch of people that have a bunch of capital. And that was the world of 1900. People forget this aspect of it. You know, it was a world of small businesses. And when you look at all the stuff that the amazing things that came out of the world around that period, they came out of small business owners and tinkerers in little shops, tinkering and playing around and coming up with things. You know, it wasn't giant corporations or uh, science labs or government that invented flight. It was two bike shop owners who were just out on a weekend trying to make this work. So, you know, you don't know people out there today trying to invent something that's like flight. You know, it's a, it takes a certain amount of, you know, the financial freedom of knowing you're secure into the future because you have money that is secure, you have capital, you own your own business. That kind of, you know, burden of daily survival being removed from your shoulder is, uh, I think, a huge help to allow, uh, is, is a huge step Creativity. forward to allow, to, to allow yeah. people to be creative because they have their own capital. They're not distracted. Yeah, they're not distracted mentally and also, you know, economically. They they have an idea about flight. They can actually go and get a bunch of machines and try things. And, and pursue it. And pursue it. Um, and, and you think about people today, you know, because of this credit system, because of the distortion of the economic calculation of the credit system leads to effectively nobody being able to accumulate their own capital. And capital is instead handed down on us from above from the central planners. And the central planners, you know, assign it to people based on political expedience and political points. And people, you know, essentially end up performing make-work rituals in offices in order to justify earning more and more of this money. That's just the distortion of economic calculation. And in that kind of system, people don't own capital. They end up working in an office. They never are able to save enough to have financial security for a few years. And so their scope for creativity is in you know is, is very limited it's vastly constrained it's it's vastly constrained and instead you know the life lives towards consumption rather than creation you know it's a, it's a life where you work all day and you know you, you you're doing something senseless that doesn't mean anything to you it's not working for something that you own it's not something for something that that you're really passionate about that you're passionate feel about purpose that, with. That, that you can pass on to your children you know instead of owning a business you know you own tiny little chunks of stocks in various different businesses and you own some you know commodities and you own some government debt and some debt for various countries all over the world it's 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 pretty insane that people own these things rather than owning their own businesses you know and having the freedom to tinker and live their own lives but it's very hard for small businesses to compete against big capital right you know When Isaac Newton had developed the gold standard, I mean, it laid the foundation for just a, an explosion of a golden age where, you know, every and then go west to America where you could homestead your own land, be given 160 acres or whatever. So, you know, with all of this, the 20th century was just a decade of, of shadows and horror, <laughs> you know, World War II and like all of this mess. With Bitcoin coming on the scene, is this a perhaps a rising sun? What type of a future is it going to look like into 
the 21st century and perhaps the 22nd and the 23rd and the 24th century having this type of hard, strict, sound money, assuming it's able to stay around. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's going to be good enough that we'll be still around and to see it a few hundred years ago. Uh, wishful thinking, probably, though. But Well, I mean, pretty much all of the advancements in healthcare have been in extending the average lifespan, but not extending the maximum lifespan. Mm -hmm. And who knows what type of creativity we might find uh, yeah. once we're freeing up some of these resources and this human capital to think about those problems. Absolutely. Well, you know, once the healthcare industry is driven... Well, the, the sickness industry. Oh, the, yeah, <laughs> we don't exactly. even really have a healthcare yeah, industry. Exactly. Once you replace the sickness industry, which is essentially driven to profit from managing illnesses, into a healthcare uh, industry that uh, where you know there's a doctor-patient relationship, and the doctor benefits from having their patients being healthy, not bothering them all the time. And and that'll probably also come because patients are shifting their time preference. You know, Absolutely. and so they're going to want to be healthy and also be around because they're no longer thinking, oh, I'll only live to be 70 years old. Maybe I'll live to be 500. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's incredible to think about it. But in, in a sense, I think, you know, the move towards agriculture made it inevitable that human society was going to always exist in a sort of slave-slave-master relationship. And it was only really with industrialization that society started to break out of that. Only with the abundance that industrialization allowed us has it become possible for us to live to with a slightly lesser degree of um, you know slavery amongst ourselves. Um, well, uh, not just industrialization. Generally, you know, capital accumulation and the advancement of knowledge but you would say, arguably, the printing press was a huge blow to this caste system that humanity has had. Of well, it just changed masses. it. Now people are debt slaves. Yes, but arguably... But they, but they kind of choose to be. Yes, although, I mean, what I'm saying is that arguably, you know, it's a, as, a, as a historical process over the last few hundred years, over the last maybe 1,000 years, we have been heading in that direction where... Um, you know, the degree of slavery of people has been getting reduced progressively. The 20th century was a major, you know, major slip on that road. It's, 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 yeah, it's, things went really bad in that regard. And it, it was a horrible, horrible century, but it doesn't have to be this way. It, it, it's, it's quite possible that, you know, we could go back to 1912 and pick up where we left off and get back to being civilized race. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, ideas can only be overcome by other ideas, as Mises says. Violence and force yes. are impotent against the power of ideas. And so we really ought to be very grateful for these people that carry the ideas of freedom and sound money and, and all these things through that century. These uh, torchbearers like Mises and Rothbard and Vieira and the others. Absolutely. I remember reading the quote, uh, that quote by Mises. It was early on as I was beginning to discover Austrian economics. And as depressing as it is to begin to understand how the world actually works. And then you read that quote by Mises and you just hear him talking to you from beyond the grave. You know, this man had his notion of why he wrote and how he thought and who he was writing for is it's completely different from his contemporaries most of them because you know he was a, his understanding of the power of ideas meant that you know even as he was maybe irrelevant academically in the silly uh, academic pissing contests of modern academia he knew that you know ideas don't just go away and you know here we are what is it now, 46 years, I think, after Mises' death. And uh, 
people just won't shut up about Mises on the internet. <laughs> yeah, a a man for the ages. Um, exactly. Yeah, so we've had a wonderful episode on economic calculation. Seyfedina Moose, Austrian economist, author of The Bitcoin Standard. Thanks so much for uh, helping us out with this week with Seyfedin. Thank you so much, Trace. Pleasure. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.